Chapter 41 The Simple Contemplation I had now become a sister of the order, and I took myself into Kosambi in the early morning of each day, together with the other nuns, wrapped in the ochre robe and with my arms bowl. There we went from house to house, until all those who wished to give had done so, although Satagira would only too willingly have spared me this daily alms round. One day I took my stand at the door of his palace, because the oldest nuns had advised me to subject myself to this trial also. At that moment Satagira appeared in the gateway. He avoided me, however, with a startled glance, and sorrowfully covered his face. Immediately thereafter the house-steward came out to me weeping, and begged that he might be allowed to send me everything I needed daily. But I answered him that it was of much greater value to me to live as a simple member of the Sangha. When I returned from the arms-round and had eaten what had been given to me, with which the question of food was then settled for the whole day, I would be instructed by one of the elder bhikkhunis. In the evening I listened, in the great assembly, to the words of the Master, or perhaps to those of one of the great disciples, like Sariputra or Ananda. After this was over, however, it often happened that one sister sought the company of another, saying, Sister, the Singsapa wood is delightful. Glorious is this clear moonlit night. The trees are in full bloom, and divine fragrances seem to be wafted through the air. Come away, then. Let us find Sister Sumeta. She is knowledgeable and sincere, a treasure house of the Dharma. Her eloquence will lend a double glory to this Singsapa grove. And thereafter we would spend the greater part of such a night in eager discussion of the spiritual life. This life in the open air, the constant spiritual activity, the lively interchange of ideas, as a result of which there was no time left for sad brooding over personal sorrows or idle reveries, and finally the elevating and purifying of my whole nature by the power of the Dharma, all this strengthened both body and mind most marvellously. A new and nobler life opened out before me, and I enjoyed a calm and cheerful happiness of which a few weeks earlier I could not even have dreamt. When the rainy season came, the buildings already stood prepared for the sisters, with a roomy hall for meditation and for common use, and a separate hut in the forest for each nun. My former husband and several other rich citizens, who had relatives amongst the nuns, insisted upon fitting out these abodes of ours with mats, seats, and low wooden beds, so that we were richly provided with everything we needed to make life reasonably comfortable. This period of seclusion of the three months' rains retreat passed easily, what with the regular alternation of conversation on spiritual questions, independent study, physical work around the monastery and meditation. Towards the evening of each day, however, we took ourselves to the common hall of the monks to listen to the master, or else he or one of his great disciples came over to see us. The forest itself was very dear to the heart of the master, so, when the rains had ceased, its freshness of renewed youth and its hundredfold richness of leaf and splendour of flower invited us to transfer the calm of our solitary meditation and our common meetings to its more open shelter. At this time of new beginnings, however, we were also met by the sorrowful news that the master was now preparing to set out on a journey to the eastern provinces. Of course, we had not dared to hope that he would always remain in Kosambi. We also knew how foolish it was to complain of the inevitable, and how little we would show ourselves to be worthy of the way of training if we were to be overcome by grief. So we turned our steps to the temple of Krishna late in the afternoon one day, to listen, perhaps for the last time in years, to the words of the Buddha and then to bid him farewell. Seated at the top of the steps, the Master spoke of the transitoriness of all that comes into existence, of the dissolution of everything that has been compounded, of the fleeting nature of all phenomena, 
of the unreality of all forms whatsoever. And after he had shown that nowhere in this nor in any other world, as far as the desire for existence propagates itself, nowhere in time or space is there a fixed spot, an abiding place of refuge to be found, he gave utterance to that sentence which you with justice called world-crushing, and which is now verifying itself round about us. Upward to heaven sublimest light life presses, then decays. Know that the future will even quench the glow of Brahma's rays. We sisters had been told by one of the bhikkhus that after the Dharma talk we were to go to the Master, one by one, in order to take leave of him and to receive a theme of contemplation which would be a spiritual guide to us in our future endeavours. As I was one of the youngest, and purposely kept myself in the background, I succeeded in being the last. For I grudged to any other that she should speak to the Master after I did, and I also thought that a longer and less hasty interview would be more possible if no others waited to come after me. After I had knelt reverently before him, the Buddha looked at me with a gaze which filled my being with light to its innermost depths, and he said, And to you, Varsity, on the threshold of this ruined sanctuary of the sixteen thousand one hundredfold bridegroom, to remember the Tathagata by and to contemplate under the leafy shade of this Singsapa wood, of which you both carry a leaf as well as a shadow in your heart, I offer you this to investigate. Where there is love, there is also suffering. Is that all? I foolishly asked. All and enough. And will it be permitted to me, when I fully understood it, to make a pilgrimage to the Tathagata and to receive a new sentence? Certainly, it will be permitted, if you still feel the need of asking. How should I not feel the need? Are you not, Master, our refuge? Seek refuge in yourself, Vasati. Take refuge in the Dharma. I shall certainly do so, Master, but you are the very self of the disciples. You are the living Dharma, and you have said it will be permitted. If the way does not tire you, no way can tire me. The way is long, Vasati. The way is longer than you think, far longer than human imagination is able to realize. And if the way leads through a thousand lives and over a thousand worlds, no way shall tire me. Good, Vasati. Farewell, then. Look into your contemplation deeply, and it will reward you. At this instant the king, followed by a large retinue, approached to take leave of the master. I withdrew to the rearmost circle of disciples, where I was a somewhat inattentive spectator to the rest of the proceedings of that last evening. For I cannot deny that I felt somewhat disappointed at the very simple phrase that the master had given me. Had not several of the sisters received other quite weighty reflections for their spiritual benefit? One, a sentence relating to existence and its causes, another relating to non-existence, a third to the transitoriness of all phenomena. And I therefore felt that I had received some kind of slight which grieved me deeply. When I had reflected further upon the matter, however, the thought occurred to me that the Master had perhaps noticed some self-conceit in me and wished to illumine it in this way, and I resolved to be on my guard in order not to be retarded in my spiritual growth by vanity or inflated self-esteem. Soon I would be able to claim praise by having mastered my contemplation and could then obtain another directly from the lips of the Master. Full of this assurance, I saw the Blessed One depart early the next morning with many disciples. Among these, naturally, was Ananda, who waited upon the Master and was always with him. He had, in his gentle way, invariably treated me with such special friendliness that I felt I should miss him and his cheering glance greatly, even more than I should the wise Sariputra who helped me over many a knotty point of the teaching by his keen analysis of all my difficulties and his clear explanations. Now I would be left to my own resources.
As soon as I had returned from my arms round, and had eaten my meal, I sought out a stately tree which stood in the midst of a little forest meadow, the true original of that mighty tree far removed from the bustle of life, of which it is said that people may profitably sit beneath, absorbed in reflective meditation. That I now did, and began earnestly upon my sentence. When I returned to the meeting-hall towards evening, I brought with me, as the result of my day's work, a feeling of dissatisfaction with myself, and a dim foreboding of what these few words might really come to mean. But when I returned to my hut on the following evening, at the close of my period of meditation, I already knew exactly what the Master had in mind when he gave me this phrase to investigate. I had certainly believed I was on the straight path to perfect peace, and that I had left my love with all its passionate emotions far behind me. That incomparable master of the human heart, however, had seen that my love was not by any means overcome. That on the contrary, having been overawed by the mighty influence of the new life I was leading, it had simply withdrawn into the innermost recesses of my heart, there to bide its time. And his desire, in directing my attention to it, was that I should induce it to come forth from its lurking place, and so overcome it. And it certainly did come forth, and with such power that I found myself at once in the midst of severe, distracting conflicts of heart, and became aware that mine would be no easy victory. It is true that the astonishing information that my loved one had not been killed, and in all probability still breathed the air of this earth with me, was now more than half a year old. But when that knowledge rose so suddenly within me, owing to the apparition on the terrace, it was at once inundated by the stormy waves of feeling it had stirred up, and all but went down in its own vortex. Passionate hate, longings for revenge, and malignant broodings succeeded one another in a veritable devil's dance. Then came the transformation of Angulimala, the overwhelming impression made upon me by the Buddha, the new life, and the dawn of another and utterly unsuspected world whose elements were born of the apparent destruction of all the elements of the old. Now, however, the first impetuous onrush of the new feeling was over. The great master of this secret magic had disappeared from my view, and I sat there alone my gaze directed on love, on my love. Again that marvellous revelation rose clearly before me, and a boundless longing for the distant loved one, who still dwelt amongst the living, laid hold upon my heart. But did he really yet abide amongst the living? And did he love me still? The fearful anxiety and uncertainty of such questions stimulated my longing yet further, and, being subdued by my love, I could make no progress with my contemplation. I thought only of love and never reached suffering, the origin of suffering and the cessation of suffering. These ever more hopeless soul struggles of mine did not remain hidden from the other sisters, and I heard, of course, how they spoke of me. Sister Varsity, formerly the wife of the Minister of State, whom even the stern Sariputra often praised for a quick and sure apprehension of even the most difficult points of the teaching, is now unable to master her sentence. And it is so simple. That discouraged me even more. Shame and despair laid hold upon my heart, and at last I felt I could bear this state of things no longer.